Welcome to the New Harvest Podcast. Today's sermon is called Life, Liberty, and Condemnation for All, and the scripture reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, for the past few weeks, right, uh, we have been talking about the subject of the mortification of sin, right? And uh, kind of learning from the late theologian John Owens, who says, Believers ought to make it their business all the days of their lives to mortify the indwelling power of sin, right? So mortification of sin is not the duty or concern of unbelievers. Like unsaved people are not supposed to act like Christians or live like Christians, but it is the privilege of the saved. And so we have also talked about what mortification of sin is not. The, the, the things that we confuse with true mortification, true righteousness. And so true mortification is not something that we can do on our own. It is something that is done by the Spirit And today, uh, we're going to actually kind of learn how to mortify our sin. So, you know, for the past three weeks, we've been kind of talking about what it actually is and not being confused with like whipping yourself or, you know, doing like these harsh things to your body. But now we're going to look at what actual mortification of sin is and how can we start doing it. So we'll look at uh, Romans 8.1, where it says, Now, uh, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? So Romans 8 1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but that, uh, that, but that it also means this, right? It also means that there is condemnation for those who are outside of Christ Jesus. And that is a central argument that Paul is going to make. In the book of Romans, that like that's what his main thesis is. So we're gonna kind of go through Romans from chapter one, and we're gonna build his argument, build his case, and what Paul is really saying. So we're gonna begin in chapter one, verse eighteen, where he says, "The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness." Right. So here, right. A lot of people are going to agree with this, right? They're going to shout amen because they want this, right? We want this to happen. Like pour out your wrath on the wicked, on the godless, on the people who suppress your truth. Like, you know, Derek Chauvin or, you know, uh, Robert Aaron Long. Pour out your wrath on those people, right? Those corrupt politicians, those greedy CEOs, those liberals or Democrats or whatever, those neo-Nazis, those are like racist people, pour out your wrath on them. Those bad people need to feel your wrath. They deserve your condemnation and judgment. And I bet this Sunday there are a lot of people crying out for this kind of stuff. Let your, let your justice flow like a river, right? We want to see Right? The wrath of God being revealed sometimes. But be careful what you wish for. In Romans 2.1, Paul continues, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Right? So let's be honest, right? 
We've all probably passed judgment on other people. We probably pass judgment every day as we read the news or watch like celebrities and watch reality TV. We just go, right? Look at them. Look at what they're doing. So messed up, so sinful, so wrong. Right? And we, we always pass judgment, right? But Paul says, when you judge someone else for their actions, for their wrong behavior, you end up condemning yourself because you are agreeing with God that evil deeds need to be punished, right? Sin needs to be condemned. And here's the catch. Everyone sins. Everyone breaks the law. Now we'll read from Romans 2, 12 through 15. Paul says, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing now even defending them. So I'm going to explain what Paul was saying. So whether you break the law written in the Bible, or whether you break the law written on your heart, you still sin. The Jews sin under the law. The Gentiles sin apart from the law. And so no matter how secular someone may be, everyone has a moral code that they live by, right? A sense of right and wrong, a sense of justice, a conscience, Right? So no matter how progressive, how liberal or moderate their moral code is, what, in, what ends up happening is everyone violates their own moral code. Everyone falls short of their own standards. Right? Like We all believe, oh, lying is wrong, but we still lie. We all believe like it's wrong to live like this or do this and, and be this kind of person, and yet we still do those. We, like, we fail ourselves. Right? So even secular people are disappointed in some of their choices. They are ashamed of some of their own thoughts and they feel guilt. Right? Even though they're not Christian or believe in God, they still feel right, guilt. And even without the Bible, secular people still recognize that the world is messed up, that things need to change, that some things are just wrong. Right? And the, but but they're not Christian or they don't Right, follow a holy book or, or you know, have a holy scripture that they live by. You know, they just live by Instagram posts, but they still know certain things are wrong and certain things shouldn't be done. And yet, they still fail to follow their own principles, just like Christians. Right? A lot of atheists and secular people will agree with you. We shouldn't judge other people, but they judge other people. Right? Uh, and so, the law condemns the believer. And the conscience condemns the unbeliever. This is like Paul's argument saying, no matter who you are, you still sin in a sense because you know there's something is right and you still do the wrong thing. Right? And so uh, Romans 3, 9 says, what shall we conclude? Right? Are we any better? Not at all. We, have all. we have already made the char that Jews and Gentiles are alike all under sin. Right, so what's the conclusion? Right, it's the conclusion that 
You know, we all know this. We've all heard this in church all of our lives. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All stand condemned. And then in uh, Romans 6, 23, you know, we know this. We were, we were taught to uh, memorize this. The wages of sin is death. And, and what Paul will say is, God will pay us our wages. God will repay every person according to what they have done in Romans 2, 6, right? So, so he'll, be, he'll be very fair, very upright, very just in his judgment, right? Every person will get right, what they have, according to what they have done. Every mouth will be silenced and the whole world will be held accountable to God. So no one will be able to go up to God and say, hey, what about this? This is unfair or dispute God's ruling, right? But God, I was like really religious, and devoted to you, went to church all the time, or I wasn't bad as some of the other people. I really tried my best. It's impossible for me anyone to be perfect. Why are you blaming me? Right? And Paul knew he you would say that, so he says in Romans three five and seven. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing His wrath upon us? They are, uh, they are secular people, atheist people who say that. Like, I can't believe in God because of the way he acts. He's so unjust to kill like babies and send them to hell. Or let you know, children suffer. Right? And certainly not. If that were so, how could, we, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enchances God's truthfulness of, and so increases glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner, right? A lot of people, a lot of your friends, and even you yourself may, may have had these thoughts or are having these thoughts about God's justice. Right? But what about people born in India and China, right? People who are raised Muslim, people who are Buddhist and atheist and agnostic and all these other different religions who never heard the gospel, are they going to be condemned? Uh, Romans one twenty says, yes. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Right? We are without excuse. We have no exceptions. It doesn't matter which religion you chose. It doesn't matter if you have no religion at all. You're still a sinner. You're still guilty of sin. And everyone knows what is right and doesn't do it. Right? Now, Paul, I know this is not like what we always hear on the pulpit. This is not the normal gospel that we are used to. But Paul is strictly talking about what happens according to the law. Like if God did everything according to the law that he gave, this is what would happen. Every human being will be condemned. Now, you know, I don't want you to argue with me about it. Right? If you were to argue with me, like talk about why you shouldn't go to hell or like why certain people right, uh, shouldn't be condemned, I would probably see your point. <laughs> And I would probably agree with you because I am a fellow sinner with a darkened mind. Criminals sympathize with each other when they're in jail. 
but the judge sees things very differently. All right, so this is not my, you know, thoughts. This is not how I would judge people. I would probably be more lenient and stuff, but this is God. Everyone will be condemned, right? Condemnation for all. So in the first eight chapters of Romans, Paul is trying to convince you that there is only one possible outcome apart from Christ. Condemnation. Total and complete condemnation for all. And so you can kind of see what Paul is doing here. He's cutting off all of our escape routes. He's crushing all of our excuses, blocking all of the exits, right? All of our rationalizations, all of our human arguments of why we don't deserve to go to hell or why someone should get more, more, more mercy or not be condemned. He's destroying all those things, right? It's like that scene in the, in, when you see in movies where like people are trapped in this like flooding room. Right. And so when the water's low, right, uh, by like the ankle or waist, they're all looking for a way out. They're all trying to figure out how can we get out of this room. And as the water gets higher and higher, people grow more frantic and more desperate. And then when the water's almost at the top and they're pressed against the ceiling, like gasping for air and they, you know, it's like they can't really, you know, breathe anymore. They start to give up. Right? But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So imagine that relief, that happiness, that joy of being saved from certain death, from like on the cusp of drowning, and someone opens the door and lets all the air out, lets all the water out. And that's what Paul is doing. He's, he's crushing you with this, with this overbearing condemnation. And then in, finally, in chapter 8, he says, Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Imagine how you would feel. Right? Imagine the joy you would feel, the, the happiness. This is the gospel. Right? Now, what do, you, what do you feel when you hear Romans 8? When, when I tell you that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Right? If you've been Christian for a long time, you probably feel nothing. And why do you think that is? Do you think that you have grown so spiritually mature that God's grace no longer moves you? Or do you think that you know the gospel so well that it is no longer the good news but old news? Does your heart feel any guilt or remorse when it hears of sin? Does your heart tremble with fear when it hears of God's majesty, right? Probably not. Do you think that you have grown so righteous and so pure that you no longer feel guilt or shame about your sin, right? Or that you, you no longer have any reverence for God's majesty, right? Who freaks out over a mess, a clean person or a dirty person? Who gets more upset by sin? A righteous person or a sinful person? And so you can kind of tell from that maybe what kind of person you are if you're not affected by your sin, if you're not distraught over your sin. Maybe something has happened. Right? It's not the fact that you've grown so holy that you have not, you're not sinning anymore, right? 
No. You have been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. More accurately, you have been hardened by your own self-righteousness. You think that you don't really need Christ. God would not condemn you for eternity. You're a good person. And so when you look at the Bible, there are two basic reactions that the wicked have when God speaks about his divine judgment. It's either denial or outrage. When Lot told his sons-in-laws to leave Sodom because God was going to destroy the city, this is a funny little thing when you see in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. His, son, his son-in-laws thought that he was joking. They laughed at him. Like, oh yeah, God's going to destroy the city. Okay. Right? When Stephen preached right, um, to the Jews to tell them to stop um, resisting the Holy Spirit, they stoned him to death. Right? Um, it's a very like vivid image of them um, closing up their ears, yelling at the top of their lung. They, they dragged him out the city and stoned him to death because they didn't like the message that he was speaking. And so that is the two um, reactions that wicked people have. It's either denial or you're joking. You're just playing around or outrage. How dare you say that about me? How dare you say God's going to judge the world or judge me? Right? And when you see, right, whenever condemnation, whenever like the pastor talks about condemnation and judgment, those are the two reactions that he always gets. Uh, at this, you know, church, and when I was doing youth group, I remember I talked about like, oh, everyone's a fake Christian. I was like, <laughs> uh, kind of giving this, con- you know, condemning sermon. And afterwards, one kid came up like, so every month we had like the uh, cake for the, for the birthdays, and we had cake. She threw, she put like cake on me and walked out because she was like, why you say that stuff? <laughs> like. You only say that stuff to make us feel bad. And then she put cake on my face and she, she ran, out the, ran out the church. Right? But that's what you see. Either people take it as a joke or they get really offended. God is love. What are you saying all this for? And now think about yourself. You used to be so tender, so responsive to God. But somewhere along the line... You have grown sermon-proof. You have grown guilt-proof. Nothing moves you. Nothing worries you or troubles you anymore. Sin has become a light thing to you. And grace has become even a lighter thing. And so when you look at the Bible, the message of the gospel is always a message full of condemnation. Look through the scriptures and see what was preached. Jesus did not go around saying, hey, guys, I love you. Believe in me. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is near. In John three thirty six, it says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on them. When Peter preached the Pentecost, he did not say God loves you. God loves you just as you are. He also told them to repent, and he said, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the people cried out, what shall we do? 
right? Because they felt their condemnation and they, and they were scared because they knew by the Holy Spirit that they were condemned. And then Peter says, repent and receive the Holy Spirit, right? Stephen did not get stoned for saying Jesus loves everyone. And even the most love verse in the whole Bible is full of condemnation. For God did not so love the world, uh, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish, meaning condemnation, right? Where, where are you perishing to? Right? For and then in uh, three seventeen it says, for right, right after John three sixteen, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Why did God not send Jesus to condemn the world? Because in the, in the middle of verse 18, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, right? Jesus can't condemn what God has already condemned. So that's why he didn't come to condemn. Because he said the whole world is already condemned. My job is to save it. My job is to get rid of the condemnation for you. Right? And so we must believe that our condemnation is totally deserved in order to believe that our salvation is totally undeserved. And so what I'm saying to you is, when we talk about the mortification of sin, the true mortification of sin, it starts with condemnation. It starts with knowing and believing that your condemnation is just and deserved. Right? And that you are hopelessly evil, as the Bible says, and truly depraved. And then when you finally understand and believe that, then you will finally forsake all your other attempts to be righteous on your own, to just be a good person. When you look at the Bible, all the saints, all the truly righteous characters had a deep sense of their sinfulness and depravity. None of the righteous saw themselves as righteous. Isaiah would say, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. The righteous Job repented in dust and ashes at the sight of God, even though he did nothing wrong. Like that was the whole, right? The, the whole narrative, right? For the 40 chapters. Like, I didn't do anything wrong, yet God's punishing me. When I see him, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to tell him what's on my mind. I'm going to get some answers. And then when God shows up, he says, I repent. I'm sorry. I was thinking of things that were too wonderful for me. Peter said to Jesus, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners, even though he was already Apostle Paul. Right? But in the Bible, when, when you see people who consider themselves to be righteous and good, those are the people who reject Jesus. Like the Pharisees or the young rich man. Or, you know, all the teachers of the law. And so this is why Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Because they're not self-righteous. They know that they're already condemned. And they know that Jesus is their only hope. You know, hell will be full of people who think that they don't deserve to be there. And don't and or didn't think that they would be there, and heaven will be the same. It'll be full of people that know they don't deserve to be there. And so, 
The mistake we make, I think, is we try to be righteous, right? Because self-righteousness does not produce true holiness and true righteousness. Self-righteousness only makes you hypocritical and arrogant. In my mind, I think our self-righteousness is the number one thing, is the biggest thing that separates us from God. Not our sin, our self-righteousness. Well, I think I'm good. I think I'm pretty good. Why is God judging me? Why do I need to surrender to Him? I'm making the right choices in my life. But when someone is kind of burdened with this overwhelming sense of condemnation and guilt, it actually drives them to God. Right? And so we see that condemnation and guilt and sorrow and then the pains and troubles of life are the, are the things that actually drive us to God more than happiness and joy and, and, and success or righteousness. Right? And our biggest mistake is trying to make ourselves righteous or thinking that we can. Only Christ can make us righteous. And so the, the person who has truly mortified their heart says, just like the prodigal son, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But then we know what happens in that story. The father comes out, hugs the son, and makes him a son anyways. Right. So that's what we do. We keep saying, I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm not worthy to be a son. And the mortification is, God knows that you're not worthy, but he makes you a son anyways. Right? God does the work. Right? The prodigal son was led back to the father because he clearly saw his sin. He clearly recognized his condemnation that he would be condemned if he went back to God, but that he had no other choice. Right? But, while, but when you look at the other person, the older brother of the prodigal son, he constantly resisted the father's call to come in. Because he saw himself as righteous, right? He's like, I work really hard. I slave over for you. I do everything you say, and you don't give me anything. And that's what actually kept them out of the kingdom of heaven. That's what actually kept them out of the Father's house was his self-righteousness. And so this is where um, we truly start um, becoming righteous people is fully embracing our condemnation, fully embracing our sin, and not trying to hide, not trying to make excuses. Right? When the condemnation is yours, the salvation will be yours. Right? When you just keep saying, oh, I'm not really that bad, then why do you need salvation? Right? So if you really truly want to experience the power of God and the power of His love and salvation, we must embrace what the law has tried so hard to do, what Satan is helping us do, to know that we're fully condemned. And this is the beginning of true righteousness. This is the beginning of repentance. You know, I think a lot of times we don't repent because we think that it's not rock bottom yet. <laughs> it's not, you know, I'm still doing all right. You know, you know that's, that's the same thing that I do when I go to the, to the doctor Right? Or that's the reason why I don't go to the doctor, because I'm like, I'm not dead. I'm not dying. <laughs> right? But 
that's what's going to kill me, <laughs> not going to the doctor properly, right? And I think this is the, the same kind of thing where this is the reason why our hearts get so hardened and we get so deceived because we rest in this fake, false uh, sense of righteousness. And we don't let the word of God condemn us as it's trying to condemn us. And therefore, we do not find joy in the fact that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so this is my um, you know, hope for you guys, is that uh, you will leave here condemned so that you can truly find uh, the, the joy and the freedom and the power of God working in you. Uh, let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we just thank you for this time. I just pray that you would help us not to harden our hearts today at this word, because it is not a word that we want to hear. It is not a message that we want to you know, listen to sometimes. It's painful to know that we are sinners, to know the true, true depths of our depravity, the true depths of our sin. But this is the only way that we can see your grace and love and joy clearly, Lord. So help us, Lord, to embrace our condemnation, to embrace our sinfulness, and to, uh, as simple beggars, just cry out for mercy and, and nothing more, and let you do the rest. So just be with us, harden our, uh, uh, unharden our hearts, soften up our hearts, so that we may truly repent according to your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.